talking to you, generally speaking, about crime. Yeah. And cookies. And cookies. <laughs> and we should say that we recorded this episode, halfway recorded this episode, was like it a few two, weeks ago? Two weeks ago, yeah. And then the iPad stopped recording. So then we stopped recording. <laughs> it's some technical difficulties that day. <laughs> so the table over and said, that's enough. That's it. We're I done. That day we forgot cookies too. We did? It just wasn't happening. Yeah, and it then we, <laughs> and then you remember, we found, you found some fortune cookies in oh, the staff room. Was, yeah. And we, we, so we still were determined yeah. to eat something. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we didn't finish recording, we said we deserved right. something. We're like, okay, fine. We'll just talk about the so cookies. So we, we like just went to the staff room <clears throat> Kind of looked around. Yeah. And you found four fortune cookies. Yeah. Just like in the corner somewhere. Blew the dust off. Yeah. <laughs> brought them in here. Yeah. yeah. So the first one I opened up had no fortune in it. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. All right. Your, your future's looking bleak. Yeah. There's no, there is no future for you. There's yeah. nothing. Nothing. And then you opened one up. Yes. And it, I forget. I don't what, remember what it said. It said alter something, I think, or something. Your plans? Yeah. Perhaps. Something, and then I opened one up. The chuckle. Yeah, you laughed. Yours up. Yeah, I opened mine up, and I had the same fortune that Jenny had, <laughs> with the same like sp- lucky numbers. On same the everything. Yeah, everything was the same. So. <laughs> Just seemed like I don't know. This one strange day. Yeah, and then so we knew we were going to do this today. We've been talking about it, and then <laughs> I was getting ready to come upstairs to record this, and realized. I left my notes at home, so I feel like this one is, because I thought, I thought I had it saved on my work computer, but I didn't, and it also was not here, and so I had to go home and get it and come yeah. back. So, so if anything else happens, yeah. I think it's the subject matter. I think it is, too. Jinxing us yes. somehow. Yeah. It's a difficult subject. This is not, I don't know if you remember, the last podcast that I did, I talked about the Amityville Horror. Yes. Which I thought was, it was interesting. There were a lot of different things we talked about, and I, I said at least once, I think I said it twice. I'm, I'm not going to do a murder next time. Like, I'm not going to talk. I already know what I'm talking about, and it's not a murder. And then? And then, spoiler alert, <laughs> I'm talking about a murder well, well, it was because someone else spoiled it yes. for us. Yes, yes, No name given. No, we won't say any names, Alexis. <laughs> I may when still... When you work in a library yeah. and you're trying to do research, yeah. you sometimes have to go put books on mm-hmm. hold or mm-hmm. request items from other libraries right. to fully do your research. Which is what I did. And then there was someone with prying eyes who looked at the shelf and knew immediately what crime. Yeah, because it was like right, I had ordered this DVD and it was right on the cover and then there was a little slip in it and it had my name on it. And I was like, oh, that must be what she's doing. And you mentioned this. revisit it sometime? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you did mention maybe at the, in our first podcast or second one that, I mean, obviously we're, we work in a library and we're using materials for these that, that anybody can access in the library system, which I think is great. So, yeah. which is what I was doing and now <laughs> that everybody knew what I was going to talk about. So, I mean, it is what it is. You'll have to tell the person who handles the interlibrary loan to put everything for you in a little black bag. So I actually, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. Oh, really? No, they're not. Uh, so... I, I had some things coming on hold for this discussion, and oh. I said, listen, you got to put them on my desk, but just like cover them up with paper so yeah. that nobody can see them, because there's usually a lot of stuff on my desk, so. So you don't need to cover it up. So it just, covered up it just blends in with everything yeah, yeah, yeah. else there. <laughs> so yeah, so I had a couple things that were like hidden on my desk, yeah. so yeah, but. Should we mention where we're going next month? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's like less than a month away. Yeah, we're very excited. Yeah. And I feel like we should mention, too, that no library funds are being used in this trip. That's true. We're paying for it all ourselves, all yes. out of pocket. So and Carrie and I are heading off to Orlando for CrimeCon, everybody. Yay! We're going to be at CrimeCon, which I, we're really excited about. Never Maybe. been there? Nope. Really don't know what to expect other than the updates we keep getting in our email. Yep. Yeah, there's going to be. Still a, don't really know what to expect. Yeah, because they haven't come out with a schedule as of right now yet. So, but there's going to be a lot of really interesting like content creators there, journalists, journalists, authors, even detectives. Detectives, yeah, people involved with like the Justice Department, FBI. You know who I want to meet? Hmm. Marsha Clark. 
Is she going to be there? I don't know, but I would. I would too. You know, she actually is an author. We have yeah. a couple of her oh, books, right. and they're good. I read them. Yeah, she's a good. She's a good writer. Yeah, yeah, and I would definitely like to see her if she's there. Maybe she'll. Maybe she'll be there. Yeah, maybe. And there's also some like victims' family members who are going to be there yes. too. So yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting. It's a. It's like a two day thing. Two, three days. Three days. Uh, <clears throat> Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm just along for the ride. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. Um, but we do plan on maybe recording mm-hmm. in our hotel room. Yeah. Yep. You have to be your room or mine. Yeah, we have separate rooms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. We're not that close. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they might be next to each other, but we have our own separate rooms. I think Carrie put on her request when she reserved her hotel room to be next to Jenny Goodall. And then I said, just keep me away from Carrie Magnus. As far away from Carrie as possible. <laughs> I'm not actually sure. I mean, I know I put, I would like to be next to you, but I, I did. I'm just hotel. kidding. Would it be cool if it was all those hotel rooms that like share a door? Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to stay in one where I knew the person next door. Yeah, that would be that would be cool. I don't know. We'll we'll update you from Orlando and we'll let you know how that we'll works. We'll let you know if there's a door that connects both our rooms. Yeah, right. We'll let you know about a lot of things. Yeah, no, we're like I like Jenny said, we're really looking forward to the convention and mm-hmm. being down there and learning a lot and going to hear different speakers and yeah, different presentations. So yeah. So we leave on the twenty first. Of next month. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so be looking for a special presentation from us. Yes. From CrimeCon. From CrimeCon. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be great. All right. You All right. Excuse me. Into your yeah. topic. Yes. So as I said when we recorded this last time, this was not an easy one for me to do. Anybody who's listening to this will already know about this case, and you actually guessed it. So Jenny and I typically don't know what the other person is doing. Oh yeah. Right? So she. So. So she. She would say, like, is it on, I think you said, is it on the JFK assassination? Oh, well, you know what you said. Yeah. What did I say? You said your husband. Oh, yeah. He's kind of interested in whatever you're watching. Well, I said he was. I figured knowing your husband. Yeah. Yeah, Who likes history. Mm -hmm. That had to be something historical. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think you mentioned JFK at some point that that would be a good one to do because of all the conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why I jumped to that. Yeah. And then it just so happened I was listening to a Dateline episode on this very topic. Yes. And then I just threw it out there. <laughs> and I said, oh, are you doing it on blank? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and then I walked away. And like, then usually usually in that situation you would just say no. So I knew I guessed it when yeah. you said maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you did guess it. It's Charles Manson. Yeah, yeah. So the reason I, and I was not planning on talking about another murder. And this one is... I mean, all murders are terrible, but this one is especially gruesome and awful and horrific. But even though this happened, my math, I want to say 54 years ago this month, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there are still things about this case that are happening now. So one of the one of the Manson girls was just released on parole. So we're going to talk about that aspect of the yeah. case a little bit as well, because there are still a few people in prison for these murders and like... If one of them is out on parole now, how does that affect the other two? Like, will they... I mean, I guess we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. So, I think I'm going to do this in the order that I had it typed up here. So, we're going to start off with the murders. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about them because I think most people already know they're pretty horrific. They're pretty brutal. And then we'll talk a little bit about Charles Manson and how he developed his family. And then we'll get to the legal side of it, if that's that sounds good. I agree good. with that approach. Okay. Okay, because <laughs> last time I did it, the other, I started with Charles Manson. I had to like keep flipping my notes. Yeah, well, was, I think, was I asking a lot of questions that probably made you? No, that's friend. good too. I think you should because I think it's interesting that you were also watching something on the th- same thing that mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Like yeah. I just think a lot of times we look at the same, we just watch the same things or I don't know, listen to the same things. But anyways, so let's start with Charles Manson and his the crimes that he and his family committed. So. <clears throat> On the night of August 8, 1969, four members of the Manson family, Charles Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, whose nickname or pseudonym was Sadie Mae Glutz, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian arrived at uh, 10,050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles, California. 
Uh, the house was owned by Rudolph Altabelli, who frequently rented the house to famous Hollywood types, including actors Henry Fonda, mm -hmm. Cary Grant, Diane Cannon, and the residents of the house before Shannon Tate and Roman Polanski moved in were Terry Melcher, who's a record producer, and the son of Doris Day, the actress. Mm -hmm. And he was living there with his girlfriend at the time, Candace Bergen. Okay. So they had moved out, and the new tenants at that address were Sharon Tate and her husband, movie producer Roman Polanski. And Roman Polanski was in Europe, either producing a movie or there was something being filmed, I think, in Europe. And so Sharon had a small get-together with some friends, including Abigail Folger, who was the heir to the Folger Coffee Company. Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend, uh, Wojciech Frykowski, who was also friends with Roman Polanski and men's hairstylist Jay Sebring, who was a former boyfriend of Sharon's, and they just remained close. And so they were just all hanging out. There was somebody else, there was a caretaker on the property named William Gerritsen, and he lived in a small like guest house or cottage house on the property. And an acquaintance of his, an 18-year-old named Stephen Parent, had stopped by just to hang out. And they didn't really know each other. They weren't super close, but they were just kind of hanging out and listening to records. And Stephen didn't stay there very long, but unfortunately he was there long enough to run into the Manson family as he was leaving. So he was driving off the property, they were coming in, um, he was attacked by Tex Watson with a knife, um, and then was shot four times. He was murdered in his car um, as he was leaving, and he was the first fatality on that, on that night at Cielo Drive. Um, so the, the details of the killings of Sharon Tate and her friends are difficult, the, the deaths were horrific. I had written in here like how many times they were stabbed, but I don't, I don't think that matters because it was just really, really awful mm -hmm. and really gruesome and really terrible. <laughs> Sharon Tate pleaded for her life and for her unborn child. She was eight and a half months pregnant, and those cries went unheard, and they, the people that killed her did not care about her or her baby, mm -hmm. and she was murdered. They were both murdered. The brutality of the killings was seen the next morning when the housekeeper arrived for work and found some of the bodies in the lawn. In addition to the Stephen Parent who was in the car, she then saw bodies in the lawn and the police arrived shortly thereafter and found an equally horrific scene inside the house. And they did notice that somebody had written the word pig mm -hmm. in blood on the kitchen wall. So that was August 8th. So while the police were beginning their investigation of the Tate murders, on the morning of August 9th, the Manson family was preparing for another night of bloodshed. They arrived at 3301 Waverly Drive, also in Los Angeles. It was the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, who lived just next door to a house where the family had actually been to a party like the year before. That's really, that's the only connection that I could find to that, why they yeah. picked that address. They, they weren't at, they at that house for the party? Or was it, like it was a house, house next door. Yeah, the house yeah. next door. Yep, yep. So Charles Manson was unhappy with the way the murder had happened the night before just hard to imagine. So he was on site to oversee the six of his followers who were there to kill the LaBiancas. So it was the, the four people from the previous night, mm -hmm. so it was Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian, and Leslie Van Houten and Clem Watson were the other two people who joined them that night on the 9th. And they proceeded to kill the LaBiancas in horrific ways. And there was also writing on the wall in the kitchen in that house, too. Patricia Krenwinkel wrote, Rise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter, although she spelled Helter wrong. She spelled it Helter. Not that that matters, but... And she wrote those in the kitchen on the wall in Lino Lampianca's blood, mm -hmm. which is really awful. Mm -hmm. um, so the city of Los Angeles, and I think the whole country was kind of like... What is happening? Like these are these these crimes are so awful. Like who is doing this? So of course now we know who did it, right? Yeah, we know right. it's Charles Manson. So let's take a look at him. Let's talk a little bit okay. about him. So he was born to a 15-year-old mother in 1934, and he had the very definition of a dysfunctional childhood. He had a difficult and complicated relationship with his mother, who was an alcoholic who spent time in prison. He never knew his father, and he was in trouble most of his teen and tween years, spending the majority of that time in reform schools and at Boys Town. Mm -hmm. He ran away frequently, committing crimes, including felonies. He did get married. He has two children. He got married to his first wife, Rosalie Wills, in 1955. They resettled to California. She gave birth to a son. I was never, never able to find anything more about yeah. him. There is another son that I, I did actually watch an interview with. 
So they divorced in 1958, and I think they had no connection to Charles Manson after that, which can you blame them? I mean, who would want to be in, connect, in touch with that guy? So Charles Manson's crimes as an adult included theft, prostitution, and forgery, which kept him in and out of prison until 1967. So by the time he was released, he had spent more than half his life behind bars. Oh. Yeah. He was just a bad guy. So he lived for a time in San Francisco before moving to Los Angeles. And this is the part of the story probably where everybody knows. Charles Manson, a charming but violent and racist psychopath, begins to form his family. Many of his followers, including Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Lynette Squeaky Fromm, were from pretty solidly middle-class families who were drawn to him for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had no redeeming qualities, but there was something about him. Well, he read that book while he was in prison. Yeah, yeah. What was the name of that? It was like How to Win Friends and Influence People. How to Influence People. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Other way around. How to Make Friends and Influence People. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Who wrote that? That was, who wrote that? Don't ask me. Was it Carnegie or? No. I don't know. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. So he must have taken some things from that. Oh, yeah. Now, another thing that I heard in my Dateline episode, I think, was that, well, it's interesting because I think it kind of contradicts his childhood from what you're okay. saying. Okay. That he actually had a decent childhood. Really? Yeah. That's not what I read. And that there's someone in his family, it yeah. doesn't sound like it could have been his father yeah. or his mother, who was like a pastor or okay. like somebody who read for him. Yeah. So he was able to gain, like, this oratorical-type talent mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. being in church. Okay. Uh, and was able to persuade people that way. Okay. But he was very influential. Yeah. Of course, I'm sure that book helped him, too. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, like, there's two different pictures here painted. Yeah, I don't I know. know which is which, or maybe it's a combination Yeah, maybe a combination two. of the two. Yeah, I don't know. Um, seems like he picked up skills along the way mm -hmm. that he could twist... Yeah. And, yeah, you know, used to his favor. Right, right. Yeah, I think he was that kind of person. I mean, it's like cult leaders are like that, right? They can find vulnerable people. Yes. They can speak to them in a way that makes them feel important, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it was interesting. I can't remember if I heard this on the audiobook or I read it somewhere that when he first met Patricia Krenwinkel, he told her how beautiful she was. Mm -hmm. And she'd never heard that from anybody. She mm -hmm. had a really, she had low self-esteem. And he said that to her and she was like, wow, this person is amazing. He's, yeah. you know, he must really care about me. So he just had that way about him of, I don't know, influencing yeah. people, right? And I think he made that statement too, that he would seek women mm -hmm. who were bent but not broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. as you said, someone who is struggling, mm -hmm. But not, not too bad. Like not right. too right. down in the dumps, I right. guess. But right. someone who you could probably use to your advantage somehow. Yeah, bring yeah. back to work yeah. for you. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He was. I mean, he was charismatic. There's no way. There's nothing. You know. There's no way around that. He did have something about him that made these people follow him mm -hmm. and and do whatever he said. Which right. is, I mean, he used it in a very negative way, obviously. But. Yeah, you wonder sometimes if these types of people could use it for good. Right. What could they have done? Right, exactly. Exactly. Because, I mean, they'd see, there's got to be some level of intelligence there, right? Yeah. Yeah. To for his followers, for sure. Yeah, yeah. To convince others to follow you, believe mm -hmm. what you believe in. I mean, some of these people in high school were, like, you know, active in academic pursuits and athletics. They were, they were good students. Mm -hmm. Some of them had gotten into drugs, and that was part of the reason that I think I think that part of what Charles Manson did. Yeah, you know, well, the like, period of free love and yeah, all the drugs, drugs and yeah, 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 like yeah. that didn't help. Yeah, that case. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I mean, I think he did find these people that were maybe missing something in their lives, or they felt something was missing, and mm -hmm. he was able to fill that for them. Yeah. But it's like you think about like Jim Jones. Like, how did he manage to convince all those people to drink that cyanide? You know, like how um, do you what is it about these people that... you got to believe what you believe in or what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a really interesting podcast, too. Like, oh, these... Yes. <laughs> you know, these cult leaders and... Yeah, I don't know. It's scary. It's scary to think that they're out there. You know, these people are out yeah. there that can... Yeah, do those things. But anyways, so Charles Manson was kind of a self-styled messiah figure. And his followers, some of them, believed that he was like a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And he began imparting his vision of the future to them. 
that America was headed to a race war, that white America would be defeated by black America, and the new leaders would need the help of chosen people. Guess who the chosen people were? White people? Charles Manson and his followers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh so it's yeah. more limited. Than yeah, it just it so happens that there's going to be this terrible thing, and then the people who are running the country are going to need the help of Charles Manson and his followers. Well, I guess Jesus. Yes. I mean, yeah, exactly. It makes sense, right? But so this this is after he's been rejected as the next member of the Beatles, right? Yeah. So we're going to get to the music. Oh, part okay. Of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although functionally illiterate, Charles had musical aptitude. Oh. And <laughs> you say what now? Did, you, did somebody say music? Did somebody say the Beatles? <laughs> So he had met Brian Wilson, or sorry, I always say Brian Wilson, it's Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. But they're both in there, right? Yeah, yeah. He met Dennis Wilson through two of his girls who were hitchhiking, and he picked them up, like on the side of the road or whatever. Kind of regrets that decision. Yeah, right. Well, he did. Yeah, absolutely. So the Manson family eventually moves into Dennis Wilson's house in Los Angeles. And Dennis encouraged Charles' musical endeavors and introduced him to Terry Melcher who you might remember used to live at 10,050 Cielo Drive. He introduced him to Terry Melcher, who was the producer for the group, the musical group, The Birds. And Dennis Wilson actually recorded a song written by Charles Manson, Mm -hmm. but I don't think Charles Manson got writing credit for that or songwriting credit. And he didn't like it because he changed the words. Yeah, he changed the words and the title. So (laughs) So is it really the same song? I don't know. (laughs) But Charles Manson and his family actually recorded songs under the direction of both Wilson and Melcher. But the relationship between Charles Manson and Dennis Wilson deteriorated, and the family was eventually evicted from the house from which Dennis Wilson had already fled, fearing for his life. Ooh. Yeah, they were a scary group. I mean, they were just... Good thing yeah, out of there. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the family eventually found their utopia at Spawn Ranch, owned by George Spawn, in a former movie set where, like, the Lone Ranger, the TV series, was filmed. And every once in a while, they'd have westerns that were filmed there. But by the time the Manson family, it, it was a dairy farm for a while, but by the time the Manson family got there, it wasn't really used for, like, it wasn't a dairy, it wasn't a working farm anymore. It wasn't used as a backdrop for yeah. westerns. It was sort of like a place that you could go and... That's a whole new meeting. Yeah, yeah. You, you could, before the Mansons got there, you could go there and ride, you could ride a horse or something for the afternoon and go riding around in the desert. The Manson family arrived on the scene in 1968 and quickly ingratiated themselves to the owner, who was in his 80s and partially blind. And he was also a little bit fearful of (laughs) Charles Manson and his family. The family lived under the guidance of Manson, who created a utopia of sex and drugs. It was free of calendars, clocks, and time, and he filled them with his frightening view of the future. I, th- I remember reading that he didn't have, there were no clocks and there were no calendars there. So there's no sense of like what day it was. He's yeah. all one. That's what you do to control people. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> I read that when he were, and he was giving drugs, excuse me, I have something in my throat. When he would give them LSD, like he would either not take any or he would just take a tiny bit so that he could control yeah. what was happening in the group. Yeah, he had total control over all of mm-hmm. them. So in November 1968, the Beatles released. What became known as the White Album. This is my dad's White Album, back from the 60s. And Charles Manson believed that the Beatles were sort of speaking to him through this album. Because if you look, there were some of the songs on here that he felt the Beatles like speaking to him directly. And the Beatles were in favor of Charles Manson's apocalyptic race war that was about to happen. He was that, that is just great. It's crazy, but you know, he looked at it and he was like, okay, where is it? So Sexy Sadie is one of the songs, mm-hmm. and he had already renamed one of his followers to Sadie Mae Lutz, and he was like, oh, that's, they know that, that's why that song is there. It just, it had nothing to do with, they did, the Beatles did not know no, I, obviously. You know I mean, so, I mean I, it's confusing in a way, like, he seems like an intelligent guy. Yeah. But then yet he firmly believed oh, that yeah. the Beatles were trying yeah. to tell him. Yeah, so he thought Helter Skelter was of his yes. Helter Skelter was the Beatles' way of saying, yes, we support what you're doing. So he was that was the song that really got him. And he believed it was a call to action. Now we talked about this before. Do you remember what a Helter Skelter is? Yes. Okay. Yep. I remember. So a Helter Skelter looks like this. 
So it's a playground or something you might see at like a fair in England, like a county fair or something. Mm -hmm. So it's like a with like a tower with a slide that goes around it. Yeah. And you like if you listen to the lyrics, I think the lyrics are something like you get down to the top then or you get down to the bottom and then you go back to the top again, which is like Yeah. That's what it is. Riding the slide. Yeah, it's, what the slide does. Yeah, exactly. So Manson interpreted that song as a call to start what would eventually be the race war that he had promised his family. And the Beatles completely rejected the notion that they were supportive of an upcoming race war and that their songs were speaking to Charles Manson mm -hmm. in any way whatsoever. But some of the things that were on this album were what were written like on the wall, like Helter Skelter was one yeah. of them. And Piggies, where's the one about yeah, right there? Yeah, yeah, Piggies, yeah. On the, night, on the nights of August 8th and 9th, the violent, sadistic, horrific murders of seven innocent people shocked and scared not just Los Angeles, but the surrounding area and the whole country. And this is where the next part of the story begins, which is the investigation into these crimes. Mm -hmm. So the LAPD began investigating the crimes, but viewed the two homicides, so the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders, as separate attacks that were unconnected to each other. Obviously, in hindsight, it's easy to see some similarities, right? So there's a frenzied overkill of just, you know, horrific numbers of stab wounds and words and phrases written in the victim's blood. But there were enough differences to see them as random attacks of upper middle class people who lived in Los Angeles. And as the bodies from the Tate murder were being autopsied, the coroners noted similarities between the types of injuries inflicted as being similar to those of murder victim Gary Hinman, who I think we talked about last time too. Yes, yes. He was an associate of the Manson family who was brutally beaten, had part of his left ear cut off, and was eventually shot to death. And his murder scene also had words written on the wall. The and he was the, wasn't he the first one? The first he was murder? the first. Yeah, he was the first one. And they were trying to get him to give up the cars? Yeah, they were basically extorting him. Yeah. Like they wanted his house. They had lived with him, right? He had some connection. I don't know if he lived at the Spahn Ranch. So there was a 1976 TV movie called Helter Skelter, which is available in the library system. I watched it as much as I could stand. It was actually really interesting. Then there was a remake of that movie, and I watched like the first 15 minutes, and I was like, I can't, I can't do this, this is awful. And it starts off with the murder of Gary Hinman. Uh, and so, how, yeah. how recent was the remake? I want to say it was in the 2000s. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there were some, some, I mean, some actors that I recognized their names, mm -hmm. and I just, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't watch it. Yeah. Because the movie Helter Skelter was hard enough to watch, like yeah. a TV movie, and like listening to the audiobook and like being immersed in Charles Manson and yeah. his daughters, just, I was like, TV movie's probably not going to be as bloody and gory as, right, right, unless this other one was a remake for the television. So the, the original Helter Skelter TV movie was actually not, it wasn't especially graphic, and it was very much, it followed the, the book Helter Skelter, which was okay. written by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor in the case, okay. and that was just very matter-of-fact. Like, yeah, that's not how the TV movie was, but it gave a lot of information about the family and mm -hmm. what they did and how they got to be, who they are. So then, from what I remember from Dateline, they killed this Gary guy. Yep. And one of the guys on in the Manson family mm -hmm. was caught. Yep. Because I think they found the bloody knife in the his car and stuff. Okay. The police pulled him over. Okay. Took him to jail. Manson was afraid he was going to rat out on them. Mm -hmm. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to try to bust him out by imitating this crime mm -hmm. elsewhere so right. that the price will think that person is still out on the loose right. committing these crimes. Right. Which is fascinating to me. Yeah. That there was this really ulterior motive oh, yeah. to get yeah. at these crimes. Yeah. Like, at the same time, I think he wanted to get back at people. Mm -hmm. But... Really, he was hoping that the police would look at this and they go, oh, we got to let this one guy yeah, out because, because other, yeah. this guy is still out yeah. on the loose doing yeah. this. I mean, I was saying this about the Charles Manson case. When I started looking into this, it was like, there were a lot of confusing parts. There were all these different things happening, right? There was the music part. There were murders at the Spahn Ranch. There were the family itself. And like then there were these little things like Gary Hinman and this other guy from the Spahn Ranch who worked there as a ranch hand. Mm -hmm who was murdered and dismembered by Charles Manson because they thought, he thought that, Charles Manson thought this guy was going to snitch. Yes. And he didn't want that to happen. Right. And they didn't find his body until 1977. So there's like multiple, this, we're, I'm primarily focused on these two murders, but yes. there were these other crimes that the right. family was committing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they were just, I mean, to say. Just when you think you know the whole story. Yeah, it's like, 
Yeah, and I learned stuff about Leslie Van Houten, who was released on parole, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But yeah, there's just all these little like little side things to the story, which make it... I, I can understand why it was a complicated case for the police to figure mm -hmm. out exactly what was going on. So on August 16th, 1969, so a couple weeks, or a week after these murders, Multiple members of the Manson family were arrested on theft charges. They had been stealing Volkswagen bugs or Volkswagen beetles and converting them into dune buggies because that was one thing they liked to do. They liked to drive around on dune buggies out in the desert. Well, that's what happens when you wait for the race for it. Yeah, what do you do? Do something to pass the time, I guess. So there was an issue, there was a technical issue with the search warrant in that particular crime, and the family was released. They just were let out of jail. Yeah, and that, they touched upon that in Dateline also, that yeah. Charles Manson was then able to say to his followers, see, I am Jesus. Look, yeah. we got out. Yeah, we got out. Yeah. And yeah. We got off the hook. They, yeah. They didn't know anything about the murders. Yeah. We're, yes. Is, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. And there was just a technical issue with the way the search warrant was written. Or yeah. So. so on September 1st, so like three weeks after the crime, a 10-year-old was playing near his home, and he found a 22 caliber revolver, like out hmm. behind his house. And he was a fan of the TV show Dragnet, which was on at the time, so he knew how to handle the gun carefully, kind of picked it up without trying. He was trying to pick the gun up without getting any fingerprints on it. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. And he gave it to his father, who called Los Angeles police regarding the finding. So in October of the same year, both cases were still working separately of each other. Okay. So there, was, there were people investigating the Tate murders, and then there were people investigating the LaBianca killings. And the LaBianca team learned from the sheriff's office about the Hinman case when inquiring about whether or not there were similar cases mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And the people who were investigating um, the LaBianca murders also felt there was some connection to this album. There was something about this album that had some connection to the murders. So multiple members of the Manson family are, get, are re arrested on the auto theft charges, including Susan Atkins and Charles Manson. And then Things start to happen when Susan Adkins is in prison. So discussions between law enforcement and local biker gangs with a connection to the Manson family led detectives to believe there was a connection between Charles Manson, his family, and the murders on both nights. And Susan Adkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, mm -hmm. was present at both murders and the murder of Gary Hinman, and she began telling her story to her cellmates in prison. She began spilling the beans. And she was really proud of it. She was... Like, you're not going to believe what they, we did. Like, we, yeah. And, um... You always have to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, and her cellmates were completely, like, alarmed oh, and yeah. disgusted and... I was terrified of yeah, her. Yeah, they were scared of her and just scared of what she was saying. Yeah. And she was um, really proud of it, like I said. So one of her cellmates was a woman named Ronnie Howard, and she made numerous attempts to contact Los Angeles Police Department to let them know that what Susan Atkins was saying that they, there was a series of like missed, like she didn't know who to call or she would call, she'd get through to somebody and she'd say, okay, I'll be in court all day, but she didn't say what courtroom she'd be in. So the police took a while to, to get that connection. Yeah. So on December 1st, 1969, almost four months after the bloody murders in the suburbs of Los Angeles, LAPD issued arrest warrants for Charles Tex Watson, who was living in Texas at the time, Patricia Krenwinkle, who had absconded to Alabama, and Linda Kasabian, who was in New Hampshire. And by the middle of the month, that month, a story in the Los Angeles Times with Susan Atkins telling her outrageous and shocking story of the murders prompted the boy's father who found that gun uh -huh. to contact LAPD oh. again and say, hey, we found this gun back in October. You, maybe you should look into that. So was that close to where the murders happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And also, I remember watching this in the... Uh, Helter Skelter movie, and I think this is from the book. So there, so Susan Atkins gives testimony to a grand jury, and stuff shows up in the newspapers covering this, covering this story. Mm -hmm. And so these newspaper reporters read that, and they're like, she had said something about they changed their clothes in the car, and then they threw them out okay. the window. And these reporters recreated like where they were coming from, how long it would take them to change, oh. and where they could go to throw their their clothes out the window that would sort of line up to what she said. Yeah. And they found them. They found them on the side of a hill. And wow. so there was additional evidence, including the bloody clothes. 
and the murder weapon, in addition to fingerprints taken at the scene, continue to point towards the Manson families as the suspects mm -hmm. in this, in both killings. And Vincent Bugliosi, who was at the time a district, a deputy district attorney in the district attorney's office in Los Angeles County, was chosen to lead the prosecution. And the People versus Charles Manson et al. began on June 15, 1970. So about 10 months after the crimes, they're in, they're in mm -hmm. court. The state charged Manson, Krenwinkel, and Atkins with seven counts of first-degree murder and one of conspiracy. Leslie Van Houten was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one of conspiracy since she was only present at the LaBianca murders. Okay. <coughs> Manson was originally granted the right to represent himself, but his behavior in the courtroom led to that privilege being withdrawn. <laughs> the Manson family continually disrupted the proceedings, laughing loudly in the courtroom, yelling nonsensical gibberish. They carved X's into their foreheads, oh, yeah. and those not on trial set up vigils outside the courthouse armed with knives. So the, fan the Manson family members who were not on trial were camped out outside the courthouse singing. I you were saying and, that they were getting a following of other people, too. Yeah, I don't, who knows? They might yeah. have. Um, and in addition, Charles Manson attacked the judge during the proceedings when he no. was not allowed to question a prosecution witness. So he didn't do himself any favors in the courtroom, no. that's for sure. The DA's office had initially granted immunity to Susan Atkins, but that was revoked after she repudiated, repudiated and revoked her grand jury testimony, in which she happily recounted the actions of the Manson family and the killings. I mean, she was just super proud of it. Never, uh -huh. never missed an opportunity to talk about it. So the prosecution then granted immunity to Linda Kasabian, who was present at both murders and was similarly charged with seven counts of first-degree murder and one of conspiracy, but those charges were dropped as she had not participated in the actual killings. She was there but didn't mm -hmm. actually do it, and she testified for the prosecution. That was something scary for her, though, because yeah. if there's still Manson oh, yeah. family followers yeah. outside, yep. Yep. I couldn't imagine... <clears throat> testifying against him right and then being released right and they're violent these people are yeah and they don't have any there's no qualms about being violent mm -hmm. um where did i leave off here so after a five-month trial the prosecution rested on november 16th the defense provided little testimony much to the chagrin of the defendants charles manson testified on his behalf and repeatedly blamed the White Album as the cause of uh -huh. yeah. Um, all four defendants were found guilty on all charges. During the penalty phase, the four defendants repeatedly engaged in disruptive behavior again, including shaving their heads and yelling loudly. The three women testified and blamed the killings on Linda Kasabian, who had uh, testified mm -hmm. for the prosecution, and they said she was the one who directed all the violent acts. Mm -hmm. The jury recommended the death penalty for all four defendants, and on April 19, 1971, they were sentenced to death. Okay. Tex Watson, who fought extradition from Texas to California and was not among the defendants in the first trial, was also found guilty of murder and conspiracy charges and also sentenced to death. Almost a year after they'd been sentenced to death in California, the state Supreme Court abolished the death penalty and the sentences were automatically reduced to life in prison. Okay. <clears throat> so let's give an update of where everybody is now. Yes. So, Charles Manson died in prison of a heart attack on November 19, 2017, and he left behind two children. Susan Atkins died in prison of cancer on September 24, 2009. She had petitioned for compassionate release because mm -hmm. she was so sick with cancer and it was repeatedly denied. Okay. She was a convert to Christianity behind bars and left behind a child that she had before she went to, to prison. Charles Tex Watson remains incarcerated in prison in San Diego. Thanks to conjugal visits with his ex-wife, he fathered four children while in prison. Hmm. He's been eligible for parole since 1976 and has been denied parole 18 times, most recently in 2021 when he was given a five-year denial of parole. They were sick of hearing from him? Yeah. Yeah. He also converted to Christianity behind bars and became an ordained minister. Patricia Krenwinkel remains incarcerated in California. She has been in prison for over 50 years and was granted parole in October 2022, a decision that was overturned by the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Okay. Her next parole hearing is in November of this year. And she maintains that she is a victim of battered woman syndrome and when asked by the parole board who she inflicted the most pain upon, she replied, myself. Hmm. 
<clears throat> now we get to Leslie Van Houten, who was released from prison in, prison in July 2023. So she's the only one that's been officially released. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, actually, no. We're going to get to that okay. in a second. Okay. Yeah. So she was released last month after serving more than 50 years behind bars. So she actually, I didn't know this, she had an interesting legal journey to prison. So she was tried with the original group, found guilty, sentenced to death. Then it was, the death penalty was overturned, now it became life in prison. Her attorney during the first trial disappeared during the trial. Okay. So he was not present for the sentencing phase of the first trial. Mm -hmm. So she was granted a mistrial. Uh. Then she was retried, which resulted in a hung jury. So, and I believe she was out on bail. So she wasn't in prison for the entire time. Hmm. The second trial, her attorneys presented a defense that the amount of LSD that she had taken affected her judgment and thought process. Okay. And the jury was not able to reach a definitive conclusion mm -hmm. about that. So it was a hung jury. So she was tried a third time on both the original charges and then the state ad added some additional charges of theft and robbery and she was resentenced to prison with the possibility of parole. So she was granted parole multiple times before she was released. Since 2016, she has been recommended for parole by the parole board, but those decisions were overturned by the sitting governors of California. Mm -hmm. And they continue to view her as a threat to society. How old is she now? She's in her 70s. I think she's 73. Okay. <clears throat> in May 2023, the California Court of Appeals reversed Governor Newsom's overriding of the parole board recommendation. So the parole board recommends her for release. Governor Newsom overrides that. I think her attorneys brought that to the California Court of Appeals. They reversed Governor Newsom's decision. Oh, and then yeah. the governor said, we're not going to continue to fight this. So he let it go? So he let it go. Yep. He said he would not appeal the Court of Appeals decision, and Leslie Van Houten became the second Manson family member to be released on parole. Clem Watson served time for the murder of Gary Hinman, and he mm -hmm. was released in 1985. Okay. So was, he the one, was he the one I was referring to that Manson was trying to break out of jail? Could have been, yeah. Okay. Yep. He only got out of jail because he wasn't involved with those other murders, yeah. those other brutal murders. Right. Well, I do think he was there at the LaBianca killings, but I don't know that he actually oh. took part in it. So, okay. so that's that. So it was the it was Leslie Houghton finally being released on parole, which made me think, oh, I should talk about this because that's just an interesting part of true crime is the criminal justice side of it and the prosecution and the defense and um, and then the jail time. So, yeah. I mean, so there's two people that are still in prison, Tex Watson and Patricia Krenwinkel, are still in jail for those crimes. I would guess that Patricia Krenwinkel will probably be, the parole board will again approve her for release mm -hmm. on parole. And I don't know what the governor will do. Because you've already, if you've already released one, then do you make the argument that you know, maybe because she was at both murders, maybe she doesn't get out of prison. Yeah, or right. I, I do remember reading somewhere that Vincent Bugliosi thought that the defendants would probably serve 15 to 20 years in prison, mm -hmm. and then they'd be released. But, I mean, Patricia Krenwinkel has been there over 50 years. I think she might be the longest-serving female inmate in California. Wow. So, I don't know. I mean, that will be an interesting case. You know, that will be interesting when she comes up for parole in November. Yeah. What will happen then? Yeah. All right. So sorry, this November. But sorry, this November. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So I mean, it, to me, it's like, okay, so should, should these people should they be out on parole? Like, do they do they have the right to rejoin society? I mean, it's the the victims, the family, the victims of the families right, are the victims to death. So, so they were originally sentenced to death. They right? weren't supposed to rejoin society. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the and the the victims' families are outspoken in that they should never be released. Yeah. Ever. I get it. Yeah, I get it too. I can see both sides. I do think what I've read that that the people that are Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex Watson have done some good things behind bars. You know, they've helped other inmates. They've and there might be some truth to the amount of LSD they were taking. Yeah, I mean, and I see that most. I mean, yeah. you really know what's right from wrong when right, you're right. high on drugs like right, that? Right, right. I don't know. 
Yeah, but then I'm like, okay, we're all adults. We all make decisions, right? I mean, they made the choice to hook up with Charles Manson. Yeah. But does that mean that's an automatic, you spend the rest of your life in jail when other people are corrupt? And it wasn't like a cult where he was able to convince you to join and then you're sucked into it and 100% behind them. Right. So I don't know. This case has kind of left me with some like, hmm. I mean, I can see both sides of it. I can see... You know, if the concept of, of, you know, a prison sentence is to, you know, commit a crime and serve your sentence, if you've served yeah. 50 years in jail, is that... And, and how young were these... They were in their late teens, early 20s. Yes, yeah. I guess my heart... I have a little softness in my heart because it's like, when you're young, you make impulsive decisions. Right, right. You're not thinking ahead. right. And how many of them were just like, hey, I finally found my yeah, my group. Yeah. And I found people who understand me, who value me. Mm-hmm. Then I think about the victims. No, I know. And I think about Sharon Tate. Yeah. And I think about her unborn baby. Mm-hmm. And I think about the other people who were just... And that's a whole, and that's a whole other level. Right. Right. It's not like you're doing petty theft. Right. This isn't, yeah, this isn't a victimless crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were... Victims, the LaBianca's children are still alive. Yeah. Sharon Tate has, I'm sure, I don't know if all, I'm sure all of the people that were murdered have family members mm-hmm. and friends who knew them and loved them and cared about them. So it's like, I see their side too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Again, that's why I chose this one because I think it does have some. Well, it's got to be awful to serve on a parole board though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, good job. I Thanks. know it was a heavy. Topic. It was a heavy, yeah. So I'm not doing a murder. No, I <laughs> I say that now, but I don't know. Maybe it'll be something that comes up. Or I've been looking at some of the speakers at CrimeCon, and some of those crimes are interesting too. I do believe my mind for next time is going to be a murder. Really? So buckle up. You got to give me a clue. Is it? No, I'm not giving you a clue. <laughs> Just one clue. Go ahead, guess. Well, does it take place in the United States? Yes. Was it JFK assassination? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Like, I get out of here now. I gotta walk away. <laughs> I don't think that's exactly how it was, but that's probably pretty close. <laughs> I think you're sitting in your office chair and you said, Maybe you all of a sudden the, the chair was just spinning and you were nowhere around. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Murder. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, you're not East Coast or West Coast? <clears throat> East Coast. And that's East all you're Coast getting now. Hmm. So I'm saying? I'm telling it's maybe it's one that I don't think you know about. Okay. So that sounds like a challenge. It does. <laughs> Which I'm excited to do in a way because I feel like, you know, you'll be learning something new that you yeah. heard. I learned a lot from your last one. So the too. Donner Party? The Donner Party, yeah. I mean I just learned things about that. I mean I had it's like Charles Manson. Yeah, People right. have heard about you that, but you what, learn you know the gist of what happened. Yeah, I know the gist of what happened. Yeah. Don't eat your friends. That's that's <laughs> but let's eat some cookies. How about yeah, that? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's transition to cookies. Yeah. I like it. Alright, Alexis, what do we have today? So we're big fans of crumble cookies. Ooh, I love it. Ooh, that looks good. Smell it. Take a whiff. Oh yeah. Ooh. Oh look that at this one. That's the that's the is that grand That smells really good. Smell it. Mm-hmm. Yummy. That just has like County Fair smell yeah. all over it. Yeah, yeah. So what do we have? We have the one that's strawberry crumb cake, and this one is cinnamon crunch. Yeah, oh, cinnamon. Crunch. Let's let's do that. Let's show a picture of that one too. Yeah, delish. All right, you want a piece of this? I want a piece okay, of that. I've been accused of manhandling these cookies, so I'm gonna let you do it. You're accused of manhandling a lot of things. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Side note: Carrie went into Dunkin' Donuts, and that's that is true. Yes. Uh, one of the workers said that she had to back off because she was mad. <laughs> no, what happened was, no, here's what happened. So I went down to Dunkin' Donuts to pick up a mobile order, and I knew what I had ordered. I had gotten, like, what did I, what did I, what did I order? Avocado toast with bacon. I never grabbed this. And a bagel. And something else. And then and then Timbits or something. Or not Timbits, whatever they call them. Anyways, long story short. <laughs> Do you want me to keep talking about this? Why are you laughing? <laughs> what? I'll tell you where I can talk. <laughs> I can't get that. This is really good. 
I have no idea why she's laughing. None. Not a clue. There we go. I couldn't get that giant piece of oh. cereal out oh, of oh. the roof of my mouth. <laughs> that is funny. So I couldn't talk. So I get in there, and I'm familiar with how Dunkin' Donuts mobile orders pickups are. And there's a bag sitting there with a bagel in it in two boxes. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I think this is mine. But there's no name on it. I just kind of looked in the bag. And then one of the workers behind the counter calls somebody else over and she was like, hey, can you watch the mobile order? Somebody's manhandling the food. <laughs> I was like, wait, is that me? I mean, I'm just looking. I know that's mine. And I'm not like. Are they talking about me? They can't possibly be talking about me. I'm like, I'm not opening the boxes up. I'm just looking at them. Hmm, this looks good. I'll have to get this next time. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I did get chastised for kind of indirectly. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you weren't personally told to stop me. No, but it was like we need. Like, let's say this loud enough so she understands. We need extra help over here because somebody's manhandling the mobile pickups. <laughs> so now when you walk into Dunkin' Donuts, there's a picture of Carrie. <laughs> it says no food manhandlers allowed. My picture is like this lady. Do not let her near mobile pickup orders. <laughs> I scarfed that piece right down. Yeah, that was good. Mm -mm -mm. Wow, super tasty. Excellent choice. Really good. I don't know what what kind is this like a is this like a snickerdoodle? Kind of. Yeah, does it? It has that taste to it. Mm -hmm. All right, cutting this one in half too. All right. Well, first of all, which cookie did you like better? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually have a hard time. Choosing. I know. I have a hard time. They're different. They're so mm -hmm. different. I say this just by a, just by like a little a little by, by hair by hair yeah but not hair that's in it <laughs> hopefully there's no hair in it <laughs> all right so wait so which one did you pick I said I liked them both you're like well come on I should pick one of them I do like the cinnamon one yeah all right. yeah I agree with you and I probably wouldn't have picked that one like I wouldn't have been like oh I'll take the cinnamon one yeah I don't need a lot of cinnamon toast crunch but that one was just I don't know there's something about the cookie it was really good yeah so I guess our last words to you are to like and subscribe share this with your friends yes we're trying to build our viewership and yeah. listeners yeah that's right yeah so and then you'll hopefully hear from us soon um, from crack live from orlando at yeah. live from orlando yeah it yeah. actually won't be live uh yeah it'll be <laughs> pre-recorded yeah, pre from, from orlando, orlando. <laughs> all right we'll okay. see you next time bye